Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of Laddie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Laddie by Jean Stratton Porter. Chapter Thirteen, Part Two: The Garden of the Lord. Next morning, Mother was feeling fine. The world was lovely. Miss Amelia was gone. May was home to help, so she began house cleaning by washing all the curtains. She had been in the kitchen to show Candace how. I had all my work done and was making friends with a robin brooding in my very own catalpa tree, when Mister Pryor rode up, tied his horse, and started toward the gate. I knew he and father had quarrelled. That is, father had told him he couldn't say God was a myth in this house, and he'd gone home mad as hops. So I knew it would be something mighty important that was bringing him back. I slid from the tree, ran and opened the gate, and led the way up the walk. I opened the front door and asked him in, and then I did the wrong thing. I should have taken his hat, told him to be seated, and said I would see if I could find father. I knew what to do and how to do it, but because of that about God, I was so excited I made a mistake. I never took his hat or offered him a chair. I just bolted into the dining room, looking for father or mother, and left the door wide open. So he thought that wasn't the place to sit, because I didn't give him a chair, and he followed me. The instant I saw mother's face, I knew what I had done. The dining room was no place for a particular company like him, and bringing him in that way didn't give her time to smooth her hair, pull shut her dress band at the neck, put on her collar and shiny goldstone pin, her white apron, and rub her little flannel rag with rice flour on it on her nose to take away the shine. I had made a mess of it. There she came right in at the door, just as she was from the tub. Her hair was damp and crinkled around her face. Her neckband had been close and stooping, so she had unfastened it and tucked it back in a little V-shaped place to give her room and air. Her cheeks were pink, her eyes bright, her lips red as a girl's, and her neck was soft and white. The V-shaped place showed a little spot like baby skin, right where her neck went into her chest. Sure as father kissed her lips, he always tipped back her head, bent lower, and kissed that spot too. I had seen hundreds of them go there, and I had tried it myself lots of times, and it was the sweetest place. Seeing what I had done, I stopped breathless. You have to beat most everything you teach a child right into it properly to keep it from making such a botch of things as that. I hardly dared to peep at mother, but when I did, she took my breath worse than the mistake I had made. Caught, she stood her ground. She never paused a second. Straight to him she went, holding out her hand, and I could see that it was red and warm from pressing the lace in the hot suds. A something flashed over her. That made her more beautiful than she was in her silk dress, going to town to help Lucy give a party, and her voice was as sweet as the bubbling warbler on the garden fence when he was trying to coax a mate into the private bush to nest. Mother asked him to be seated, so he took one of the chairs nearest him and sat holding his hat in one hand, his whip in the other. Mother drew a chair beside the dining table, dropped her hands on each other, and looking in his eyes, she smiled at him. I tell the same thing over about people's looks, but I haven't told of this smile of mother's, because I never saw exactly how it was, or what it would do to people until that morning. Then, as I watched her, 
for how she felt decided what would happen to me. After Mr. Pryor was gone, I saw something I never had noticed until that minute. She could laugh all over her face, before her lips parted until her teeth showed. She was doing it now. With a wide smile, running from cheek to cheek, pushing up a big dimple at each end, her lips barely touching, her eyes dancing, she sat looking at him. "'This is the most blessed season for warming up the heart,' she said. "'If you want the half of my kingdom, ask quickly. I'm in the mood to bestow it.' How she laughed! He just had to loosen up a little and smile back, even though it looked pretty stiff. "'Well, I'll not tax you so far,' he said. "'I only want Mr. Stanton.' "'But he is the whole of the kingdom, and the king to boot,' she laughed, dimpled, and flamed redder. Mr. Pryor stared at her wonderingly. You could even see the wonder, like it was something you could take hold of. I suppose he wondered what could make a woman so happy like that. "'Lucky man,' he said. "'All of us are not so fortunate.' "'Then it must be you don't covet the place or the title,' said Mother more soberly. "'Any woman will crown the man she marries, if he will allow her.' Paul went farther. He compelled it. "'I wonder how,' said Mr. Pryor, his eyes steadily watching Mother's face. "'By never failing in a million little things, that taken as a whole, make up one mighty big thing, on which he stands like the Rock of Ages.' "'Yet they tell me that you are the mother of twelve children,' he said, as if he marveled at something. "'Yes,' cried Mother, and the word broke right through a bubbling laugh. "'Am I not fortunate above most women? "'We had the grief to lose two little daughters at the ages of eight and nine. "'All the others I have, and I rejoice in them.' "'She reached out, laid a hand on me, drew me to her, and lightly touched my arm, "'sending my spirits sky-high.' She wasn't going to do a thing to me, not even scold. Mr. Pryor stared at her, like Jacob Hood does at Laddie, when he begins rolling Greek before him. So I guess what Mother said must have been Greek to Mr. Pryor. "'I came to see Mr. Stanton,' he said suddenly, and cross-like, as if he didn't believe a word she said, and had decided she was too foolish to bother with any longer. But he kept on staring. He couldn't quit that, no matter how cross he was.' The funniest thing came into my mind. I wondered what on earth he'd have done if she'd gone over, sat on his lap, put her arms around his neck, took his face between her hands, and kissed his forehead, eyes, lips, and tousled his hair, like she does father and our boys. I'll bet all I got, he'd have turned to stonier stone than Sabethany. You could see that no one ever served him like that, in all his old, cold, hard, cross, mysterious, shut-in life. I was crazy to ask. Say, did anybody ever kiss you? But I had such a close escape bringing him in wrong. I thought it would be wise not to take any risks so soon after. It was enough to stand beside Mother, and hear every word they said. What was more, she wanted me, because she kept her hand on mine, or touched my apron every little while. I'm so sorry, she said. He was called to town on business. The county commissioners are sitting today. They are deciding about the Groveville Bridge and Pike? Yes, he is working so hard for them. The devil, you say. I beg pardon. But it was about that I came. I'm three miles from there, and I'm taxed over sixty pounds for it. 
"'But you cross the bridge every time you go to town and travel the road. "'Groveville is quite a resort on account of the water and lovely country. "'Paul is very anxious to have the work completed "'before the summer boarders come from surrounding cities. "'We are even farther from it than you, but it will cost us as much.' "'Are you insane?' cried Mr. Pryor. "'Not at all politely. "'But you could see that Mother was bound "'she wouldn't become provoked about anything, "'for she never stopped a steady beam on him. "'Spend all that money for strangers to lazy around on "'a few weeks and then go. "'But a good bridge and fine road will add to their pleasure, "'and when they leave, the improvements will remain. "'They will benefit us and our children "'through all the years to come.' "'Talk about the land of the free,' cried Mr. Pryor. "'This is a tax-ridden nation. "'It's a beastly outrage. "'Ever since I came, it's been nothing but notice of one assessment after another. "'I won't pay it. "'I won't endure it. "'I'll move.' "'Mother let go of me, gripped her hands pretty tight together on the table, "'and she began to talk. "'As for freedom, no man ever was, or is, or will be free,' she said. "'quite as forcibly as he could speak. "'You probably knew when you came here "'that you would find a land tax-ridden "'from a great civil war of years' duration "'and from newness of vast territory "'to be opened up and improved. "'You certainly studied the situation.' "'Studied the situation,' "'his whip beat across his knee. "'Studied the situation. "'My leaving England was, er, "'the result of intolerable conditions there, "'and the nature of flight from things not to be endured.' I had only a vague idea of the States. If England is intolerable, and the United States an outrage, I don't know where in this world you'll go, said Mother softly. Mr. Pryor stared at her sharply. Madame is pleased to be facetious, he said sneeringly. Mother's hands parted, and one of them stretched across the table toward him. Forgive me, she cried. That was unkind. I know you are in dreadful trouble. I'd give—I'd almost give this right hand to comfort you. I'd do nearly anything to make you feel that you need bear no burden alone, that we'd love to help support you. I believe you would, he said slowly, his eyes watching her again. I believe you would. I wonder why. All men are brothers, in the broader sense, said Mother, and if you'll forgive me, your face bears marks of suffering almost amounting to torture. She stretched out the other hand. You couldn't possibly let us help you? Slowly he shook his head. Think again, urged Mother. A trouble shared is half over to start with. You lay a part of it on your neighbors, and your neighbors in this case would be glad, glad indeed, to see you carefree and happy as all men should be. We'll not discuss it, he said. You can't possibly imagine the root of my trouble. I shan't try, said Mother. "'But let me tell you this. "'I don't care if you have betrayed your country, "'blasphemed your God, or killed your own child. "'So long as you're a living man, "'daily a picture of suffering before me, "'you're a burden on my heart. "'You're a load on my shoulders, without your consent. "'I have implored God. "'I shall never cease to implore Him, "'until your brow clears, your head is lifted, "'and your heart is at rest. "'You can't prevent me.' This hour I shall go to my closet, and beg him to have mercy on your poor soul. And when his time comes, he will. You can't help yourself, or you would have done so long ago. You must accept aid. 
This must end, or there will be tragedy in your house. Madame, there has been, said Mr. Pryor, shaking as he sat. I recognize that, said Mother. The question is whether what has passed is not enough. You simply cannot understand, he said. Mr. Pryor, she said, you are in the position of a man doubly bereft. You are without a country and without a god. Your face tells every passerby how you are enjoying that kind of life. Forgive me if I speak plainly. I admire some things about you so much. I am venturing positive unkindness to try to make you see that in shutting out your neighbors, you will surely make them think more and worse things than are true. I haven't a doubt in my mind, but that your trouble is not one half so dreadful as you imagine while brooding it over. We will pass that. Let me tell you how we feel about this road matter. You see, we did our courting in Pennsylvania, married and tried Ohio, and then came on here. We took this land when it was mostly woods. I could point you to the exact spot where we stopped. We visited it yesterday, looked down the hill, and selected the place where we would set this house, when we could afford to build it. We moved into the cabin that was on the land first, later built a larger one, and finally this home, as we had planned it. Every fruit tree, bush, vine, and flower we planted. Here our children have been born, lived, loved, and left us. Some for the graveyard down yonder, some for homes of their own. Always we have planned and striven to transform this into the dearest, the most beautiful spot on earth. In making our home the best we can, in improving our township, county, and state, we are doing our share toward upbuilding this nation. She began at the ABCs, and gave it to him straight, the whole thing, just as we saw it. And he listened, as if he were a prisoner, and she a judge telling him what he must do to gain his freedom. She put in the birds to keep away the worms, the trees to break the wind, the creeks to save moisture. She wanged him, and she banged him, up one side and down the other. She didn't stop to be mincy. She shot things at him, like a man talking to another man, who had plenty of sense, but not a particle of reason. She gave him the reason. She told him exactly why, and how, and where, and also just what he must do to feel right toward his neighbors, his family, and his God. No preacher ever talked half so well. Yea, verily, she was as interesting as the bishop himself, and far pleasanter to look at. When she ran short of breath, and out of words, she reached both hands toward him again. Oh, do please think of these things, she begged. Do try to believe that I am a sensible person, and know what I am talking about. Madame, said Mr. Pryor, there's no doubt in my mind, but you are the most wonderful woman I ever have met. Surely I believe you. Surely I know your plan of life is the true, the only right way. It is one degree added to my humiliation that the ban I am under keeps me from friendly intercourse with so great a lady. Lady, said my mother, her eyes widening. Lady, now it is you who are amused. I don't understand, he said. Certainly you are a lady, a very great lady. Goodness, gracious me, cried my mother, laughing until her dimples would have held water. That's the first time in all my life I was ever accused of such a thing. Again, I do not comprehend, said Mr. Pryor, as if vexed about all he would endure. Mother laughed on, and as she did so, she drew back her hands and studied them. 
Then she looked at him again, one pink dimple flashing here and there, all over her face. "'Well, to begin at the root of the matter,' she said, "'that is an enormous big word that you are using lightly. Anyone in petticoats is not a lady. By no means. A lady must be born of unsullied blood for at least three generations on each side of her house. Think for a minute about where you are going to fulfill that condition.' Then she must be gentle by nature and rearing. She must know all there is to learn from books, have wide experience to cover all emergencies. She must be steeped in social graces and diplomatic by nature. She must rise unruffled to any emergency, never wound, never offend, always help and heal. She must be perfect in deportment, virtue, wifehood, and motherhood. She must be graceful, pleasing, and beautiful. She must have much leisure to perfect herself in learning, graces, and arts. "'Madame, you draw an impossible picture,' cried Mr. Pryor. "'I draw the picture of the only woman on earth truly entitled to be called a lady. You use a good word lightly. I have told you what it takes to make a lady. Now look at me.' How she laughed, Mr. Pryor looked, but he didn't laugh. "'More than ever you convince me that you are a lady, indeed,' he said." Mother wiped her eyes. "'My dear man,' she cried, "'I'm the daughter of a Dutch miller "'who lived on a Pennsylvania mountain stream. "'There never was a school anywhere near us, "'and father and mother only taught us to work. "'Paul Stanton took a grist there and saw me. "'He married me and brought me here. "'He taught me to read and write. "'I learned my lessons with my elder children. "'He has always kept school in our house "'every night of his life. "'Our children supposed it was for them.' I knew it was quite as much for me. While I sat at knitting or sewing, I spelled over the words he gave out. I know nothing of my ancestors, save that they came from the lowlands of Holland, down where there were cities, schools, and business. They were well educated, but they would not take the trouble to teach their children. As I have spoken to you, my husband taught me. All I know I learn from him, from what he reads aloud, and places he takes me. I exist in a twenty-mile radius, but through him I know all lands, principalities and kingdoms, peoples and customs. I need never be ashamed to go or afraid to speak anywhere. Indeed not, cried Mr. Pryor. But when you think on the essentials of a real lady, and then picture me patching with a first reader propped before me, facing Indians, gypsies, wild animals, and they used to be bad enough, why, I mind one time in Ohio, when our first baby was only able to stand beside a chair, and through the rough puncheon floor a copperhead stuck up its gleam of bronzy gold, and shot its darting tongue within a foot of her bare leg. By all accounts, a lady would have reached for her smelling salts, and gracefully fainted away. In fact, a lady never would have been in such a place at all. It was my job to throw the first thing I could lay my hands on, so straight and true that I would break that snake's neck, and send its deadly fangs away from my baby. I did it with Paul's plane, and neatly, too. Then I had to put the baby on the bed, and tear up every piece of the floor, to see that the snake had not a mate in hiding there, for copperheads at that season were going pears. Once I was driven to face a big squaw, and threaten the life of her baby with a red-hot poker, while she menaced mine with a hunting-knife. There is not one cold, rough, hard experience of pioneer life that I have not endured. 
Shoulder to shoulder, and heart to heart, I've stood beside my man, and done what had to be done, to build this home, rear our children, save our property. Many's the night I have shivered in a barn, doctoring sick cattle and horses we could ill afford to lose. Time and again I have hung on, and brought things out alive, after the men gave up and quit. A lady? How funny! The amusement is all on your part, madame. So it seems, said mother. But you see, I know so well how ridiculous it is. When I think of the life a woman must lead, in order to be truly a lady, when I review the life I have been forced to live to do my share in making this home, and rearing these children, the contrast is too great. I thank God for any part I have been able to take. Had I life to live over, I see now where I could do more. But, neighbor, believe me, my highest aspiration is to be a clean, thrifty housekeeper, a bountiful cook, a faithful wife, a sympathetic mother. That is life work for any woman, and to be a good woman is the greatest thing on earth. Never mind about the ladies. If you can honestly say of me, she is a good woman, you have paid me the highest possible tribute. I have nothing to change in the face of your argument. Said Mr. Pryor, Our loved queen on her throne is no finer lady. That time mother didn't laugh. She looked straight at him a minute, and then she said, Well, for an Englishman, as I know them, you have said the last word. Higher praise there is none. But believe me, I make no such claim. To be a good wife and mother is the end toward which I aspire. To hold the respect and love of my husband is the greatest object of my life. Then you have succeeded. You stand a monument to wifehood. Your children prove your idea of motherhood, said Mr. Pryor. How in this world have you managed it? The members of your family, whom I have seen, are fine, interesting men and women, educated above the average. It is not idle curiosity. I am deeply interested in knowing how such an end came to be accomplished here on this farm. I wish you would tell me just how you have gone about schooling your children. By educating ourselves before their coming, and with them afterward. Self control, study, work, joy of life, satisfaction with what we have had, never ending strife to go higher and to do better. Dr. Fenner laughs when I talk of these things. He says he can take a little naked hottentot from the jungle and educate it to the same degree that I can one of mine. I don't know, but if these things do not help before birth, at least they do not hinder, and afterward you are in the groove in which you want your children to run. With all our twelve, there never has been one who at nine months of age did not stop crying if its father lifted his finger or tapped his foot and told it to. From the start, we have rigorously guarded our speech and actions before them. From the first tiny baby, my husband has taught all of them to read, write, and cipher some before they went to school at all. He is always watching, observing, studying the earth, the stars, growing things. He never comes to a meal, but he has seen something that he has or will study out for all of us. There never has been one day in our home on which he did not read a new interesting article from book or paper, work out a big problem, or discuss some phase of politics, religion, or war. Sometimes there has been a little of all of it in one day, always reading, spelling, and memory exercises at night. 
He has a sister who twice in her life has repeated the Bible as a test before a committee. He himself can go through the New Testament and all of the Old, save the books of the generations. He always says he considers it a waste of gray matter to learn them. He has been a schoolmaster, his home his schoolroom, his children, wife and helpers, his pupils, the common things of life as he meets them every day, the books from which we learn. I was ignorant at first of bookish subjects, but in his atmosphere, if one were no student, and didn't even try to keep up or forge ahead, they would absorb much through association. Almost always he has been on the school board, and selected the teachers. We have made a point of keeping them here, at great inconvenience to ourselves, in order to know as much of them as possible, and to help and guide them in their work. When the children could learn no more here, for most of them we have managed the high school of Groveville, especially after our daughter moved there, and for each of them we have added at least two years of college, music school, or whatever the peculiar bent of the child seemed to demand. Before any daughter has left our home for one of her own, she has been taught all I know of cleanliness about a house, cookery, sewing, tending the sick, bathing and dressing the newborn. She has to bake bread, pie, cake, and cook any meat or vegetable we have. She has had her bolt of muslin to make as she chose for her bedding, and linen for her underclothing. The quilts she pieced and the blankets she wove have been hers. All of them have been as well provided for as we could afford. They can knit, darn, patch, tuck, hem, and embroider, set a hen, and plant a garden. I go on a vacation, and leave each of them to keep house for her father a month, before she enters a home of her own. They are strong, healthy girls. I hope all of them are making a good showing at being useful women. And I know they are happy, so far at least. Wonderful, said Mr. Pryor. Father takes the boys in hand, and they must graduate in a straight furrow, an even fence, planting and tending crops, trimming and grafting trees, caring for stock, and handling plane, auger, and chisel. Each one must select his wood, cure, fashion, and fit his own axe with a handle, grind and swing it properly, as well as cradle, scythe, and sickle. They must be able to select good seed grain, boil sap, and cure meat. They must know animals, their diseases and treatment, and when they have mastered all he can teach them, and done each thing properly, they may go for their term at college, and make their choice of a profession. As yet, I'm sorry to say, but one of them has come back to the land. You mean Laddie? Yes. He has decided to be a farmer? He is determined to make the soil yield his living. I am sorry. Sorry indeed to hear it, said Mr. Pryor. He has brain and education to make a brilliant figure at law or statesmanship. He would do well in trade. What makes you think he would not do well on land? Wasted, cried Mr. Pryor. He would be wasted. Hold a bit, said Mother, her face flushing as it did when she was very provoked. My husband is, and always has been, on land. He is far from being wasted. He is a power in this community. He has sons and cities in law and in trade. Not one of them has the friends and the influence on his time that his father has. Any day he says the word, he can stand in legislative halls and take any part he chooses in politics. He prefers his home and family, and the work he does here. 
but let me tell you, no son of his ever had his influence, or opportunity, or ever will have. All this is news to me, said Mr. Pryor. You didn't expect us to come over, force our way in, and tell you? It was his turn to blush, and he did. Laddie has been at our house often, he said. He might have mentioned. Mother laughed. She was the gayest that morning. He might, but he never would. Neither would I, if you hadn't seemed to think that the men who do the things Mr. Stanton refuses to do are the ones worth while. He could accomplish much in legislative halls. He figures in the large. He thinks that to be a commissioner, travel his county, and make all of it the best possible, to stand in primaries, and choose only worthy men for all offices, is doing a much bigger work than to take one place for himself, and strive only for that. Besides, he really loves his land, his house, and family. He says no man has a right to bring twelve children into the world, and not see personally to rearing and educating them. He thinks the farm and the children too much for me, and he's sure he is doing the biggest thing for the community at large, to go on as he does. Perhaps so, said Mr. Pryor, slowly. He should know best. Perhaps he is. I make no doubt, said Mother, lifting her head proudly. And as Laddie feels, and has fitted himself, I look to see him go head and shoulders above any other son I have. Trade is not the only way to accumulate. Law is not the only path to the legislature. Comfort, independence, and freedom, such as we know here, is not found in any city I ever have visited. We think we have the best of life, and we are content on land. We have not accumulated much money. We have spent thousands. We have had a big family for which to provide, and on account of the newness of the country, taxes always have been heavy. But we make no complaint. We are satisfied. We could have branched off into fifty different things after we had a fair start here. We didn't, because we preferred life as we worked it out for ourselves. Paul says when he leaves the city, and his horse's hoofs strike the road between our fields, he always lifts his head higher, squares his shoulders, and feels a man among men. To own land, and to love it, is a wonderful thing, Mr. Pryor. She made me think of something. Ever since I had added to my quill and arrow money the great big lot at Easter, father had shared his chest till with me. The chest stood in our room, and in it lay his wedding suit, his every Sunday clothes, his best hat with a red silk handkerchief in the crown, a bundle of precious newspapers he was saving on account of rare things in them he wanted for reference, and in the till was the wallet of ready money he kept in the house for unexpected expense, his deeds, insurance papers, and all his particular private papers, the bunches of lead pencils, slate pencils, and the box of pens from which he supplied us for school. Since I had grown so rich, he had gone partners with me, and I might lift the lid, open the till, and take out my little purse that May bought from the huckster for my last birthday. I wasn't to touch a thing save my own, and I never did, but I knew precious well what was there. If Mr. Pryor thought my father didn't amount to much because he lived on land, if it made him think more of him to know that he could be in the legislature if he chose, maybe he'd think still more. I lifted the papers, picked it up carefully, and slipping back quietly, I laid it on Mr. Pryor's knee. He picked it up and held it a minute, until he finished what he was saying to Mother, 
and then he looked at it. Then he looked long and hard. Then he straightened up and looked again. God bless my soul, he cried. You see, when he was so astonished he didn't know what he was saying, he called on God, just as Father says everyone does. I took a side look at Mother. Her face was a little extra flushed, but she was still smiling. So I knew she wasn't angry with me, though of course she wouldn't have shown the thing herself. She and father never did, except as each of us grew big enough to be taught about the crusaders. Father said he didn't care the snap of his finger about it, except as it stood for hardihood and bravery. But Mr. Pryor cared. He cared more than he could say. He stared and stared, and over and over he wonderingly repeated, God bless my soul. Where did you get the crest of the Earl of Eastbrook, the master of Stanton House? he demanded. Stanton House, he repeated. Why, why the name? It's scarcely possible, but— But there it is, laughed Mother, a mere bauble for show, and amounting to nothing on earth, save as it stands a mark for brave men who have striven to conquer. Sugeri Tento, read Mr. Pryor from the Little Shield. Four shells— Madame, I know men who would give their lives to own this, and to have been born with the right to wear it. It came to your husband in straight line? Yes, said Mother, but generations back. He never wore it. He never would. He only saves it for the children. It goes to your eldest son? By all rights, I suppose it should, said Mother. But Father mentioned it the other night. He said none of his boys had gone as he tried to influence them. "'unless Laddie does now in choosing land for his future. "'And if he does, his father is inclined to leave it to him, and I agree. "'At our death it goes to Laddie, I am quite sure.' "'Well, I hope, I hope,' said Mr. Pryor, "'that the young man has the wit to understand "'what this would mean to him in England.' "'His wit is just about level with his father's,' said Mother. "'He never has been in England, and most probably he never will be.' I don't think it means a rap more to Laddie than it does to my husband. Laddie is so busy developing the manhood born in him, he has no time to chase the rainbow of reflected glory, and no belief in its stability if he walked in its light. The child of my family to whom that trinket really means something is little sister here. When Leon came in with the thief, I thought he should have it. But after all, she is the staunchest little crusader I have." Mr. Pryor looked me over with much interest. "'Yes, yes, no doubt,' he said. "'But the mail line, this priceless treasure should descend to one of the mail line, to one whose name will remain Stanton. To Laddie would be best, no doubt, no doubt at all.' "'We will think about it,' said Mother serenely, as Mr. Pryor arose to go. He apologized for staying so long, and Mother said it hadn't been long, and asked him the nicest ever to come again.' She walked in the sunlight with him, and pointed out the chestnuts. She asked what he thought of a line of trees to shade the road, and they discussed whether the pleasure they would give in summer would pay for the dampness they would hold in winter. They wandered around the yard and into the garden. She sent me to bring a knife, trowel, and paper, so when he started for home he was carrying a load of cuttings and roots to plant. When father came from town that evening, at the first sight of him, she went straight into his arms, her face beaming. She had been like a son all that day. Some of it must have been joy carried over from yesterday. "'Praise God, the wedge is in,' she cried. Father held her tight, 
stroked her hair, and began smiling without having the least idea why. But he very well knew that whatever pleased her like that was going to be good news for him also. "'What has happened, mother?' he asked. "'Mr. Pryor came over about the road in bridge tax. "'And, oh, Paul, I've said every word to him "'I've been bursting to say from the very start. "'Every single word, Paul. "'How did he take it?' "'Time will tell. "'Anyway, he heard it, all of it, "'and he went back carrying a load of things to plant. "'Only think of that. "'Once he begins planting and watching things grow, "'the home feeling is bound to come. "'I tell you, Paul, the wedge is in.' Oh, I'm so happy. End of chapter 13